This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I'm going to try something new today in response to a few listener requests, and I should say how lucky I feel to even be able to use that phrase, listener requests. I've been on here since October of, what year? Of 2020. Is that right? Of 2020. Yes, that's right. And right about the time that this goes live, this episode, I will have reached an estimated audience, a repeating audience of 100 people and we'll have, in about a year and a half's time, accumulated about 20,000 listens, which is probably the number of new subscribers and uh, listens that Joe Rogan gets uh, in the time it takes for him to sneeze. But, uh, but I still feel very lucky that anybody is listening at all, because I never really imagined that anybody would. Um, and so the requests were this. The, the first one was, uh, do more autobiographical stuff, which again surprises me too, because I assumed that that was the filler many times. Um, you would rather hear good poetry than just hear me talk about autobiographical stuff, wouldn't you? But uh, for one listener out there, uh, that is not the case. And um, another listener said that uh, th they listen while driving in the car, basically, or while out doing something that makes it hard to, uh, when an episode ends, to find another one. And so I thought, uh, there really isn't a need if I have about an hour's worth of material a week. There's really no need to put those into two episodes, I don't think. And if anyone disagrees, uh, look in the post description for the email and let me know. But for that reason, um, I'm going to try something new tonight and put something autobiographical first, and that's what I'm about to say. And then after that, I'll do about a half hour or so that I recorded earlier this week on Picasso's painting, uh, Guernica. And what I'll do when there is a split episode like this that will be about an hour long, is that in the post description I will make a note of when the second part of the episode starts, in case there are those out there who just want to skip the first part. So I will just do that. And um, I'm especially lucky because the subject, the autobiographical subject today, also came uh, from a request from a listener. I can't remember what episode it was, but I mentioned something about the bookstores of our 20s and how uh, many of us out, here, out there, out everywhere, uh, who likes to read uh, could easily do their own podcast episode of 
their favorite bookstores or just what the experience of bookstores have been in their lives. And when I went back to make a list of them, I realized that the meaningful bookstores uh, were not in my 20s at all. Uh, that is when I was living in California with my wife, and by then uh, we weren't living near very, very many good used bookstores. I remember going into one of them and finding David S. Reynolds' amazing biography, cultural biography as he calls it, of Walt Whitman. But it was one of those used bookstores that looks like it's been there for 20 years or 30 years. And, and the owner was there, and I'm sure there were cats all around. And there were books stacked on the carpeting that never got vacuumed. And it was one of those stores where you got the impression that the person owning it perhaps owned the space already and they really didn't need to pay rent, and it didn't seem as if he really wanted there to be patrons in the store. It was one of those kinds of places. Uh, there was uh, a wonderful place called, uh, uh, I believe it was called the Crown Bookstore, and this was in Corona, California. The other one was in, a, in nearby Riverside. And the Crown place was in the middle of a strip mall uh, in, in the middle of a large store that once was the uh, main attraction in a strip mall. And it was a bunch of unfolded card tables, and you just go up and down the rows. And I got many, many good books there that I think I ended up selling after a point. But one of them that I still have and will never get rid of is just a huge, glorious uh, book about Gothic architecture. It has the best photographs and the best diagrams and the best uh, the best everything that I've ever seen about Gothic art. But um, by this time, uh, living with my wife, it was all ordering stuff online. And so I wanted to actually go back to the earliest bookstores that I remember and what they meant to me. And the very first one, actually, uh, I don't remember the books at all. It was a place, I think it was called Dell's. The, the, the manager was an old man named Dell. And it stood on the corner of East 222nd Street and another road in Euclid, Ohio, when I was uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. And you had to pass up the books and the comic books to get to what my brother and my friends were really going for, which was the uh, glass case of, uh, of baseball cards. So I don't really remember the books at all. There were probably old Ray Bradbury's or, or old, uh, just old 50s paperbacks, but I don't remember the books so much as the baseball cards that we would all go in and look at and the ones we would drool over because we would never have enough money to buy the cards, the ones you would see in the sleeves. I was really proud, and I still have the stack uh, less than 20 feet away from me here, um, in a box of the 1950, I want to say 53 Tops cards uh, from the Yankees. There's an Eno Slaughter and a, uh, oh, what's his name? 
I know all these people's names except when I'm trying to record something about them. Whitey Ford, a bunch of others. And they're all in horrible condition. But uh, even then, I had a great attachment to history, to the idea that something that I can hold in my hand or a place that I can visit has been here, uh, in this case, since the 1950s, since my dad was my age now, that kind of a thing. Um, so I don't remember the books very much at all. There was the book fairs at the Catholic school I went to when I grew up, where they would uh, bring them in in those big rolling bookcases, and they would open up almost like a diptych, and uh, instead of revealing a painting, a devotional painting, it would be two, uh, two bookcases. And I remember getting Richie Tankersley Cusick's, one of her books, one of those uh, uh, junior high horror authors. And of course, Alvin Schwartz's uh, Scary Stories, that's where I first got those. And it's funny because when I was writing all this out, I didn't remember the scholastic book fairs in grade school, but uh, it came up just when I needed to remember it. Uh, in the auditorium, on the stage, uh, behind the uh, behind the uh, basketball court where we would have gym class. And since my parents were teachers at this school, I'm pretty sure that I got early dibs and last dibs of being able to go into this uh, place where the books were being sold and to get what I could. But the first real bookstore that I remember ever going to and having distinct memories about would have been uh, after, would it have been after? It would have been after. Uh, it would have been just before and immediately after my family moved about 40 miles away from the town where I grew up. But because my parents, because my mother still taught at the school where I was going, and because I wanted to deny the fact that we had moved and didn't want to uh, deal with any of that, I continued going to that school and driving 40 miles every day with my mother. And uh, there was also a mall there, uh, the Euclid Square Mall, which now I think is, if it hasn't been torn down, it's got to be pretty close. It's got to be a ghost town. But there was a Walden Books in there, and that was the first time Actually, I can date it because I remember the books that I saw. Uh, that was the first time I can remember seeing a Stephen King book in hardcover. And one of those books is Four Past Midnight, which was released in 1990, which sounds about right. And also King's book Needful Things, which came out in 1991. So this would have been after we moved that I was still going to this bookstore. And the cover of Four Past Midnight and the cover of Needful Things are both very evocative. Needful Things being the name of a antique store that opens in a town. And Four Past Midnight just being uh, an old clock with uh, sinister overtones in the cover art. I also remember seeing Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho on display and wondering what the hell is that about and I think uh, everything that I did not pick the book up 
or try to read it when I first saw it. That also came out in 1991. Um, so I remember these things. The, the idea of, and, and the things that struck me were these books, hardcover books, on display artwork, the, uh, the author photograph on the back. And I realized it was important because so uh, almost immediately it became an important memory because I think one of the very first books by Stephen King I read was Needful Things. I would have read that in 91, 92, or 93. And already, even then, even if it was only a year or two or three years later, I still had the image firmly fixed in my mind of being in that Walden Books in the Euclid Square Mall and and seeing a book and realizing I could read this and enter this other world, or I could, or or the or the, the idea was what would it be like to read this book, and and suddenly I had, and so I, I, I even then I remembered those dual feelings, even if there was only a year or two separating them, which is kind of interesting. The other thing I remember about that store was, of course, I, I would go over to the magazines and read Electronic Gaming Monthly and the other video game magazines. And, of course, I also noticed where the Playboys and the penthouses were. And this is going to sound very quaint to anybody out there who, I guess, is younger than 30, maybe even younger than 35, I'm not sure. But uh, I can remember trying to find the courage to hold on to my electronic gaming monthly and also make a grab for one of those magazines and then take it to the back where I could actually go and look at it. I think as far as I got was grabbing the magazine, probably a Playboy, hiding it behind the video game magazine, walking it to the back, probably trying to find some innocuous section that I didn't think anybody would go into, and uh, imagining that I could uh, look at some naked women there in the back of a Walden Books and not feel weird or paranoid about it. Um, I don't remember actually looking at it because I was probably just too terrified to do it. And that became a kind of focus for me because... Uh, not not the Playboys, but the bookstore. Uh, I guess the Playboys came later. Um, uh, because malls, again, this dates me. This sounds quaint to anyone who isn't uh, anyone who is under thirty. Malls were the places where you went to hang out, right? And uh, even if you were like me and you were you were walking around just with your parents or you would say, uh, meet me over here in 20 minutes. And so I was walking around by myself. Um, even then, it was a fun experience. Um, I would find a way to uh, go into Foot Locker or Finish Line to look at all the shoes uh, that, that I really wanted to get. But I, always, but I would always be extremely paranoid of leaving, of walking in front of people uh, without having bought anything. It's funny, the, uh, there's, a, there's a documentary about Jack Kerouac called uh, What Happened to Kerouac, and the poet Michael McClure 
uh, mentions this exact scenario. He says that uh, something about how Jack Kerouac was the most self-conscious person he ever met. And he mentions that exact scenario of just being in a place and having to walk across a room and feeling everybody's eyes on you. I highly doubt that anyone working the cash register at Finish Line or Foot Locker, and Foot Locker was a fairly small store then, so you wouldn't really notice who was coming and going. I doubt any of them ever saw me. But I don't remember ever feeling that way in the Walden books. And that struck me as well. And soon enough, um, after we moved, and I was still stubborn and didn't want to get on with things, that was when I started reading seriously, reading adult books and not just kids' books. The first of those, I'm pretty sure, was Whitley Strieber's Communion and some of his other alien abduction books. But after that, I moved on to Dean Kuntz's books, and for a while, since I'm argumentative and I feel the need to take sides about things that are ridiculous and don't really mean anything, as evidenced by some of the episodes of this podcast, for a while, just as I like to think that I was militantly just a Sega video game player and not a Nintendo video game player, for a while... I felt, uh, well, I just read Dean Koontz. I don't read Stephen King. So that's how I was for a while. And I can remember when, after my parents saw how, how much I was reading and how serious I was about it, uh, that was when I was let in on the fact that adults, many adults, are paid every two weeks. And so they would tell me, we'll buy you a new book every two weeks. And there was a Kmart and a far more uh, store, and what was the other one? Um, Kmart, far more, and another one of those department stores that uh, have just uh, disappeared off the face of the earth. And I can remember standing in front of the stacks of Dean Kuntz books in these places and planning out which books I would get next. I think Clive Barker was another one. And the the thrill of that, of looking at the covers and, and the way that the books were designed to match themselves on the shelves and um, just seeing how it was all done. There's an, there was a paperback of Anne Rice's The Witching Hour, which I still remember it to this day, where it said that uh, one of the blurbs on the back said that she... Uh, was very good at writing lush prose and steamy sex. I didn't have to look sex up, but I had to look up prose. What the hell is prose, and what, and how does prose become lush? I had to learn all of these things. And this could really be the reason why I'm so obsessed with uh, have I achieved the kind of success that I really think I deserve, because half of my earlier serious reading experiences were just as much about um, going to a store with my parents and not having a great deal to do otherwise, and just sort of introducing myself to the way that books are printed 
and how the covers are designed and how they are displayed and how they have quotations about them. Uh, I mean, the first author that I ever knew anything about personally was Stephen King, and uh, I loved his, ended up loving, I still do, all of his afterwords that he addresses to constant reader. Um, I became so attached to those because it showed me that doing this stuff is not magic, it's just what some people do. And if you have someone like Stephen King who writes a good afterword about where his stories come from, and if it also includes some good jokes, you can knock all of this stuff down on a pedestal a little bit, knock it off its pedestal a little bit, and see that it isn't all just uh, highfalutin stuff. Uh, it's extremely human, human voices, indeed. And so I remember that at the Kmarts and the Farmores and this other place that I cannot remember um, the name of. Hills, that's what it is, the Hills Department Store. Um, and they would all have uh, either bookmarks or a little uh, a little chart that showed how much you could save by by shopping with them. If the paperback was four ninety nine, you would only pay four twenty five or something like that. the The introduction that Stephen King gives in the extended version of the Stand, which was also, I think, published around nineteen ninety, I was amazed that he would say he would have an introduction that said read this before buying the book. If you haven't read this before buying the book, I hope you saved your receipt. It was incredible to me that an author out there who apparently had better things to do would be worried about the, uh, worried about whether people who bought his books had saved their receipts in case they wanted to return them. Um, and then at some point, uh, after I moved away from King and Kuntz and the like, and I was convinced that, well, I should be reading William Faulkner. I should be reading these more literary people. And soon after that, when the Ashtabula Mall was built, they had their own Walden books, not just the one that I had in Euclid, but they had another one in the Ashtabula Mall. I wonder how many of them are even left. And so that became my Walden books for a while. And that is when I first saw, for instance, all of William Faulkner lined up on a shelf looking identical and how attractive all of that looks. And it's funny, I can remember seeing, and let me look it up real quick. I can remember seeing a hardcover of Simon Shama's book, Rembrandt's Eyes. Let's see. I can remember seeing that in the Walden books in the Ashtabula Mall, and I want to get a date on when that book was published. That would have been uh, history 1999. Okay, so I would have been 20 when uh, when that book came out. It's strange. I would have remember would have thought that that was earlier, but there we have it. Uh, that Walden Books was the first place that I bought a hardcover Stephen King book, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, when it came out. I felt terribly proud of that, of being able to get it then. 
But as I became more aware of other kinds of books, um, that was the place where I found those too, as well as tarot cards. That's the first place I bought uh, a tarot deck. And um, just as I used to go to the mall with my parents, now I was going there with my friends, buying tarot decks and sitting outside of the Foot Locker, uh, doing spreads, doing tarot spreads on the floor, hoping that everybody walking by is uh, judging us very keenly indeed. And, and this was around the same time that the name, not necessarily the work, but just the name, Allen Ginsberg first came came into my awareness. And so I remember calling that Walden Books and saying, uh, do you have copies of Allen Ginsberg's Howl? It was almost as if that it, it wasn't a name and a title. It was as if that whole thing was the title, Allen Ginsberg's Howl. And when I first became aware of the Talmud, and I told this story to my rabbi, uh, and he got a great kick out of it, um, when I first became aware of the Talmud and first started reading about the history of religion in Karen Armstrong's book, A History of God, um, so much of it flew right over my head, but somehow, for some reason, the idea of the Talmud, of what I thought it was, of what, of how Karen Armstrong presented it and what I thought it might be, it prompted me to call the Walden Books in, in Ashtabula, Ohio, to say, do you have a copy of the Babylonian Talmud? And the poor girl on the other end of the line um, had to look that up, and she had to tell me, I must have sounded like I was still in high school, because I was, and she had to tell me, this is 22 volumes and $900. And that was when I hung up very quickly. But uh, it was just little things like that. Um, and actually, one of, the, one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had with a book and a bookstore, one of the most vivid memories, uh, happened at that, at that bookstore. It was a... It was a Friday night. It was either in the fall of 1996 or in the first few months of 1997. I remember this because I was taking a creative writing class in high school, and our teacher was making us uh, do a journal, and that is the earliest extended journal of mine, I believe, that I, that I still have. And so I still have the moment written down, but um, I was told by one of my teachers in school, that one book you should go and look for is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And by this time, I was a senior in high school, and I no longer wanted to pretend. I'm not sure that I pretended for very long at all. It's not like I was rebelling against anything, but um, I no longer wanted to pretend that I needed to go to the Friday night football games, right? So I made a point of taking the car out to the Ashtabula Mall on a Friday night and going to the store and finding a copy of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And it was cold. It was the winter. Uh, the car, I'm pretty sure, it was either a 
yellow Chevy Cavalier that when you turned it on and tried to turn the heat on, the whole car ended up smelling like syrup. Um, and s soon after that broke down. It may have been that car. And uh, I can just remember leaving the mall and uh, walking out to the car, walking out to the parking lot. And it was important somehow. I, I didn't know anything about race. I didn't know anything about what Invisible Man was about. I didn't know anything about Ralph Ellison. But I knew that I was uh, doing this thing instead of going to the football game. I knew that I was out by myself on a Friday night in high school uh, buying this 600-page book. And so it was meaningful to me that it was called Invisible Man because I certainly felt invisible in my own way. Not, not in a negative way like, woe is me, or I wish people saw me or something like that. Um, it was just a thing of having left the mall and standing by the car and seeing my breath in the, uh, in the air because of how cold it was and just listening to either the silence of the parking lot, the silence of winter in Northeast Ohio, uh, after a good lake effect snow, that kind of thing, or maybe even the distant sounds of people coming out of the other stores, the, the larger Kmart, the one that I would end up working at uh, later that summer, or places like Dillard's or JCPenney or these other places where you'd be buying other things. And just standing there and feeling with this book called Invisible Man in my pocket now uh, that I was on the right track somehow even if nobody else was there to recognize the moment or notice me at all. And that's a really vivid, uh, a really vivid memory for me. The next one is another Walden Books, and this would have been uh, only a few months after the, the Friday Night with Invisible Man. There was a uh, another Walden Books in a city called Mentor, Ohio. And that was a place where uh, if there was nothing to do in the place that we had moved to, which there very usually was, very there was nothing to do there, uh, the next populous place, if you didn't want to drive all the way to Cleveland, um, you would drive to Mentor. They would have a larger mall, uh, a bigger... Uh, a bigger main drag full of stores and Taco Bells and actual restaurants and uh, coffee shops and things like that. And uh, there was a Walden Books in this store, as in, the, in this mall as well. And not only did I have the great luck the year before, this would have been in spring of 1996, of, um, this is a small digression, but it's worth telling, um, I can recall very clearly uh, when my relatives came over for Easter and one of my aunts or uncles mentioned, uh, have, have any of you seen this movie called Seven with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Morgan Freeman? So after the family all left, I went and got that movie from the uh, video rental place. And that is the only time 
I'm pretty sure the only time that I watched a movie twice, right in a row, immediately after, just following on one another. And the next day was uh, a Sunday, I'm pretty sure. And my mother was still working at the same uh, grade school. And I asked her, um, if you happen to, you know, swing by the mall, will you go into Walden Books and look for a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy? I didn't know it was in three parts. All I knew was that uh, that uh, Brad Pitt apparently did not enjoy having to study it in the movie Seven. And um, being a, a curious Catholic at the time, um, I felt like I needed to read it, and it was poetry. Um, I had just done, or was planning to do, a paper in high school on Milton's Paradise Lost, so that long poems were always with me, even then. And my mother came home with Alan Mandelbaum's uh, translation of the Inferno, with the, uh, with the Italian on the left and English on the right. And I can remember the very moment that I first got uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the Dante similes, and that is uh, was just a huge moment of of realizing I can read poetry, and and the the images that uh, Dante felt uh, entering the wood or leaving it or whatever it was, he felt like someone. Like um, like a swimmer who has left the left the rough waters and turns back to look at the waters that he has just left, and I remember spending so much time on that first page of Dante and suddenly finding myself able to follow what he was saying and how he was saying it. Miraculous, uh, astounding thing to suddenly have happen. Um, so that was that Walden books. Um, but uh, later on, about a year after that, this would have been in April of 97 or so, was when I first became aware, truly aware, of T.S. Eliot. And I have Stephen King to thank for my early introductions to that because he has a book called The Waste Lands. He uses a lot of Eliot, obviously, in that book and in others. And in his book, It... Uh, many of the chapters have epigraphs from William Carlos Williams Patterson, and Salem's Lot has an epigraph from Wallace Stevens. And so I owe a great deal of my earliest exposure to good American poetry to uh, Stephen King, but I never went to actually get the book, right? Um, I did get the collected poems, 1909 to 1962, uh, in hardcover from the Astribula Mall, uh, Walden Books. But on this night, it was another night driving out by myself, and what I found instead of the collected poems was just um, a little, what must be like a four by seven, a strangely shaped book of the Wasteland, 75th anniversary edition, with an essay by Christopher Ricks at the back. And it was that book, that little gold book, 
that I carried with me in my pocket when I went away to uh, college. And as I think I've said before, um, thinking about college orientation, uh, it's not anything anybody said that I remember. It is uh, realizing that I could escape to the bathroom at any moment and read from the wasteland instead. And Christopher Ricks is another thing, the great uh, British uh, literary critic. Uh, his, he wrote the introduction to the Signet classic uh, of Paradise Lost, of Milton's Paradise Lost. And so I owe a great deal of him, too, to really introducing me to what a, uh, what a literary critic who is not drowning in theory can do by introducing someone to not just John Milton, but to uh, T.S. Eliot as well. So I remember buying that book. Let me see what else I have here. Yes, T.S. Eliot and Dante. I remember buying that book, The Little Gold Wasteland book, and driving further on from Mentor into another town called Painesville. And Painesville is uh, a place where uh, Lake Erie College is, and that's where I went away, quote-unquote, went away 40 miles away from home to college, uh, wasting a great deal of money there that I only really paid off uh, in the last year or so, if you can believe that. Um, but in any case, there was a, a, a wonderful restaurant there called Perkins, and they had, to my taste at the time, and probably to my taste now, I still don't have a very... Uh, a very uh, refined palate. They had amazing macaroni and cheese. So there I am, 17 years old, with my copy of The Wasteland, eating a side of macaroni and cheese, because that's probably all I have enough money for, a side of mac and cheese and a, and a glass of Coke, and reading The Wasteland. And as it happened, I believe, I'm almost certain that this was 10 years to the day before I got married, which is its own strange sort of confluence of things. But just uh, the idea of driving in the car by yourself, of being able to buy something by yourself, of having it be this treasure, again, like Invisible Man, in this case being this tiny pocketbook of this famous poem, um, I can remember going to, repeating that experience later buying, by buying uh, Burton Raphael's translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from the same store and driving off to the same Perkins and uh, reliving that kind of experience. But the first one was with the wasteland. The, the, the whole thing is right there um, that a, uh, a young wannabe... Uh, aspiring poet could ask for, the car, the road, a little bit of money, um, a sacred text of some kind, a, only, a, real, only a, a tiny inkling of what it all means, of what T.S. Eliot means, of where he came from, of what he meant when he said London, uh, I had no idea 
what London or Vivian Elliott or him working at the bank and all of this stuff. I had no knowledge of any of that. It was just the sound of the words and knowing that this was a revered thing and wondering how do you not just, I mean, it's right there if it's egotistical at 17 or not. It's not just how do you read a thing like this, but how do you write something that has the same echo as this. And uh, it's all right there. Uh, the car, the store, a little bit of money, a sacred text, an inkling of what it might all mean, an inkling of what I might be able to do myself, and just sitting there. Uh, nobody really noticing me unless it's to refill my Coke and um, eating some mac and cheese. Um, and that takes me really up until the end of high school. Those were the bookstores. The ones after that were mostly online, mostly Amazon. And ever since then, there's been a string of half-price bookstores, mostly the one that... that uh, uh, that is about 10-15 minutes away from where I live now. And that place has become a nice bit of escape. I left one out. Um, I left a very good one out. Um, when I was 21, 20 or 21 or so, and having a fight with my girlfriend at the time, I see the, I see the image right in my head um, of going behind... Uh, the books in my shelves and finding the little cup where I was quote-unquote trying to save money, grabbing all of it and not running off to the bar, not running off uh, anywhere scandalous, but running off to Borders. And that is where I bought a copy of the, uh, the Finnish epic, The Kalevala. And I left the place, uh, what, 20 bucks 20 bucks poor, still fighting with my girlfriend, but uh, with this huge, fucking amazing brick of a poem in my hands, and sitting there in, in an hour reading the introduction to it, and then getting to the opening lines. If anyone has not found Keith Bosley's Oxford World Classics uh, uh, translation of Elias Lunrot's the Kalevala, just stop whatever the hell you're doing. Turn me off and go and buy that book. Um, but I went to an Eaton Park and sat at the counter because I was probably, since I was fighting with my girlfriend, I probably wanted to just talk to another girl. And instead, uh, the waitress comes over, who's probably my age or a little older, and she sees the big book. She asks what it is. Uh, she gives you the uh, the Bill Hicks punchline, not uh, what are you reading, but what you're reading for, that kind of thing. And uh, my one-liner to get the girl's attention was, I would like to write a poem like this myself someday, which uh, got her to walk away quickly. Um, but I can that I can remember that that counter and reading the Kalevala. Um, but the half price, half price books, and uh, in in suburban Pittsburgh, there was a time there when I was selling so many books there constantly 
that I would bring the bag in and someone would say, would, uh, and one of the workers there would say, would someone please help Mr. Miller with his bags? And for the longest time, I couldn't quite understand why I was selling so many books. And as it happened, I sold so many books to empty out uh, our second bedroom, and that is where my daughter is now. And it is still a relief um, after the stress of, after a stressful day of parenting, after a stressful year of COVID, stressful more than a year of COVID, it is still such a relaxing thing to just walk into that half-price bookstore and just look around. Now, my friend, a, a listener, said to me, do the bookstores of your 20s, and uh, this is what I did instead, and I hope it was worth, uh, I hope it was worth listening to. And coming up next will be a bit of Pablo Picasso. Thank you for listening, if you are indeed still listening. I wanted to look at Pablo Picasso's painting Guernica tonight, and I will use at the beginning and the end uh, a little anecdote from Simon Shama's wonderful book, The Power of Art. And if anyone has a chance to see the TV series version of uh, this book, you would uh, probably enjoy it. This is This comes from the beginning of Shama's chapter on Picasso. It says, in the winter of 1941, Pablo Picasso was living and working at the top of an old house in the Rue de Grand Augustine in Paris. The Seine was a stone's throw away. Hard northern light swept in over the rooftops. Pigeons perched on the sills. But Picasso's left-bank life during the occupation was more bohemian than he would have wished. It was bitterly cold, and the electricity was unreliable. Only an old-fashioned floor-to-ceiling stove, and his latest lover, Dora Marr, kept him warm. His painting was becoming gloomily repetitive, jagged-headed women weeping tears like steel beads, or thin spills of blood, flayed heads of sheep, and, unfortunately, he fancied himself a surrealist playwright. There was a conspicuous absentee from the display kept around the studio. And that was Guernica, the painting that had made him the most famous or notorious artist in the modern world. The Germans didn't like it very much. The scream of pain at the barbarities inflicted by the Luftwaffe on the helpless civilians of a Basque town in the spring of 1937. But they couldn't get to the painting. In the nick of time, in 1939, Guernica had been shipped off to New York on the SS Normandy, like a refugee, along with the violinists and psychiatrists from Vienna and Berlin. Installed in the Museum of Modern Art, 
it had become more than just a picture of horror. Guernica was a billboard of moral indignation, a site where people gathered to be reminded of what separated them from fascist cruelty. It was the good incendiary. Thwarted from seizing the offending object, the Nazis in Paris gave Picasso the hardest time they could, short of actually arresting him. Collaborators attacked him in the Vichy press for corrupting the noble art of painting. Hints were dropped that he might be Jewish himself, or that he was hiding Jewish artists. Where is Lipschitz? the French militia thugs yelled at him as they trashed the studio. But Picasso was not easily intimidated and brazened out the attacks. He kept postcard reproductions of Guernica in his studio, and he enjoyed giving them to the intruding Gestapo and French police, saying, go on, take one, souvenir. One day, so the story goes, a German officer, both bully and secret admirer, paid Picasso a visit. Picking up one of the Guernica postcards, he turned on the painter and asked him accusingly, Did you do this? Oh no, said the artist. You did. And that is one of my favorite things, favorite little stories about creativity. And um, I like it even better because uh, there's every indication that, not every indication, but there's a good indication that that probably never actually happened. And yet it is too good not to repeat. Um, there's actually another very good anecdote that supposedly came from Picasso that is also probably never happened, but is too good not to repeat. And that is that he was supposedly taken to the Ice Age caves of Altamira in Spain, and or it could have been one of the recently discovered ones in, uh, in France, where you see the huge... Uh, halls, you might say, of bulls and horses and all the other animals. And Picasso is said to have uh, looked at all of this stuff, which it could be anywhere between 15 and, say, 30,000 years old. And his response on coming out uh, is said to have been something like, we haven't improved very much on it since. And again, whether or not he actually said that, uh, it is something that Picasso should have said, something that we should all say, I suppose. And what I'm going to do in between the two pieces from Simon Shema, I'm going to read something that is literally hot off the presses. This comes from John Richardson's fourth volume in his biography of Picasso that just came out in November of last year. And this is A Life of Picasso, The Minotaur Years, 1933 to 1943, and I'll put links to it in the post description. Uh, I've been waiting to do an episode on Guernica uh, with the excuse of waiting for this book to come out. Uh, John Richardson died in 2019, and uh, this fourth volume on Picasso is something that I've been refreshing uh, Amazon for for more than a decade, I suppose. Uh, I haven't read this yet, so what I'm reading now is uh, new to me. 
but uh, based on what Richardson has written in his other books on Picasso, I imagine that it will be quite wonderful. And this is how it begins. This is chapter 14, and the chapter is simply called Guernica. Uh, in his 2015 book, Guernica 1937, The Market Day Massacre, the historian Xavier Irullo revealed the hitherto unknown fact that the destruction of the historic Basque town of Guernica was planned by the Nazi Reichsminister Hermann Göring as a gift for Hitler's birthday on April 20th. Guernica, a parliamentary seat of Biscay province, had not as yet been dragged into the Spanish Civil War and was, what, and was without defenses. Logistical problems delayed Göring's master plan, and as a result, Hitler's birthday treat had to be postponed until April 26th. Besides celebrating the Fuhrer's birthday, the attack on Guernica served as a tactical military and aeronautical experiment to test the Luftwaffe's ability to annihilate an entire city and crush the morale of its people. The Condor Legion's chief of staff, Colonel Wolfram von Richthofen, painstakingly devised the operation to maximize, to maximize human casualties. A brief initial bombing at 4.30 p.m., drove much of the population into air raid shelters. When Guernica's citizens emerged from these shelters to rescue the wounded, a second, longer wave of bombing began, trapping them in the town center from which there was no escape. Low-flying planes strafed the streets with machine gun fire. Those who had managed to survive were incinerated by the flames or asphyxiated by the lack of oxygen. Three hours of coordinated strikes leveled the city and killed over 1,500 civilians. In his war diary, Richthofen described the operation as, quote, absolutely fabulous, a complete technical success. The Fuhrer was so thrilled that two years later, he ordered Richthofen to employ the same bombing techniques on an infinitely greater scale to lay waste to Warsaw, thereby triggering the Second World War. The morning after the bombing, Radio Bilbao broadcast a statement by the Basque president, José Antonio Aguirre, breaking the news to the world that Guernica had been annihilated by the Wolfwaffe. The Basque and Spanish communities in Paris went into immediate action. The Basque painter José María Ucalé claimed to have told Juan Larea, cultural attaché at the Spanish embassy, about Guernica's destruction when the two men ran into each other outside the Champs-Élysées metro. Larea immediately jumped into a cab and raced to the Café de Flore to find Picasso. As an ardent promoter of Spain's pavilion, Larea realized that the obliteration of Guernica would provide the artist with the very subject he had been seeking. And this is for, uh, this must be brought up in the previous chapter. Um, uh, let's see. As an ardent promoter of Spain's pavilion at the upcoming World's Fair, and he had just, uh, and he had just gotten Picasso to agree to 
do a painting for Spain for the World's Fair. Um, so he, Larea realized that the obliteration of Guernica would provide the artist with the very subject he had been seeking. When, according to Ukulele, Picasso said he had no idea what a bomb town looked like, Larea replied, like a bull in a china shop, run amok. On April 29th, the artist, the artist George Steer's first-hand account of the bombing in the Communist Party's newspaper um, said this, When I entered Guernica after midnight, houses were crashing on either side, and it was utterly impossible even for firemen to enter the center of town. The following day, the artist saw heart-rending photographs of the corpses among Guernica's ruins, published in other French daily newspapers. Meanwhile, of course, Franco and his Nazi allies denied that any bombing had taken place. Instead, they claimed that the Basques had destroyed their own city and blamed nationalists in order to win international support for their anti-fascist cause. A statement to this effect was released to foreign journalists. Guernica was destroyed with fire and gasoline. It was set afire and reduced to ruin by the Red Hordes in the criminal service of Aguirre, president of the Basque Republic. For months after the massacre, the right-wing press in France would maintain this false version of events. Even the Vatican, presented with eyewitness accounts from Basque clergymen, failed to denounce Franco for attacking civilians. Until the bombing of Guernica, Picasso had not settled on a subject for his World's Fair commission. His 12 preliminary sketches from April 18th to 19th depict a studio scene with a painter and his model, one of the artist's favorite themes. After April 26th, however, Picasso abandoned his early designs for one that reflected the awful reality of the massacre. He ordered an enormous canvas in mid-May from his preferred art supply store on the Rue de la Grande Chaumière. Like Picasso and many of his other Spanish clients, the proprietor, the proprietor Antonio Castelluco, had attended Bar Barcelona's School of Art and Design. Castelluco sent a young Catalan painter, Jami Vidal, to deliver Picasso's canvas and stretcher. He arrived at 10 a.m. at the Rue de Grand Augustine, where he found that, quote, Picasso was already up and overexcited, asking me why I was arriving so late and shouting at me. We unrolled the canvas and stretched it, then nailed it to a frame. On the floor lay a dozen drawings. I barely had time to fix the first half of the canvas when Picasso climbed on a ladder and started drawing with charcoal. Now, I should say that uh, all of John Richardson's biographies of Picasso are wonderfully illustrated. There's usually a section for color reproductions in the book somewhere, but the rest is filled with black and white photographs of uh, Picasso at the time and of his works in progress. And, uh, and that is true of the process of putting Guernica together as well. Uh, to get an idea of how huge the canvas is and to get an idea of just what it means when you say Picasso had already climbed onto a ladder, you don't really even need to find the book. Just, to Google, just do a Google search for 
Picasso painting Guernica, and you will see it. It's a marvelous, uh, a marvelous record was put down that I assume Richardson is about to get to here, of how that record was put down, how Picasso painted Guernica. Um, the raised arm with a clenched fist, seen in the first date of Guernica on May 11th, makes plain Picasso's political sympathies at this crucial moment. The communist salute was used in Spain during the Civil War as a gesture of anti-fascist solidarity. Picasso may have considered using the motif in deference to his patrons, to his patrons in Spain's popular front government, who expected a clear and powerful political statement. Juan Negrín, the socialist politician about to become Spain's prime minister, believed that, quote, the presence of a mural painted by Picasso is the equivalent value in propaganda terms of a victory at the front. I'll read that again for everyone from W.H. Auden forward who thinks that uh, poetry can do nothing and uh, I suppose art can do nothing. Um, and as I've said as a caveat each time I mention something like this, it's also true that um, maybe even somebody like me, if the world suddenly swerved tomorrow, if the world returned to this view uh, where art was this influential or poetry, maybe I wouldn't like it, but it's worth noting that sometimes uh, it does happen. Uh, the socialist politician about to become Spain's prime minister believed that, quote, the presence of a mural painted by Picasso is the equivalent value in propaganda terms of a victory at the front, end quote. Ultimately, the artist did not want his work to have a Soviet tinge, and the fist soon disappeared from the composition. And uh, I'm looking at it here. They have a picture of it. It looks like uh, what became the flaming eye with a... Uh, uh, with a light bulb in the center. Uh, originally, that is where the raised fist was, as far as I could tell. Um, instead, Picasso dealt with the subject of Guernica by personalizing it, albeit in code. Generations of art historians have obsessed over the painting's meanings and sources in countless publications. Like many of his other masterpieces, Guernica is pervaded with Picasso's own problems and preoccupations. Understanding the artist's votive obsession and the significance of his broken vow, and that is, um, uh, I believe, deals with his, with his sister. Um, we can now identify the image of his long-dead sister, Conchita. I believe that his sister died when Picasso was very young and he supposedly made a vow that he would or would not continue painting if she died. I can't remember what those uh, circumstances are. Um, Picasso's sister makes an appearance in the first sketches for Guernica, and she would survive all the subsequent variations. Conchita no longer figures as a child, as she does in Picasso's other works, such as Minotaur Maki, but she has been transformed into an adult who thrusts out a sacred lamp clutched in her hand in order to have it lit by the Mithraic sun. 
The this gesture was echoed in one of the five sculptures that appeared with Guernica at the pavilion, Picasso's over life-sized 1933 painting Woman with a Lamp, which he had recast for the World's Fair. So meaningful was this sculpture to Picasso that he would later arrange for a bronze cast to preside over the palace where he had chosen to be buried in the garden at his country residence. Let's see here. Years later, in 1992, says John Richardson, I interviewed Picasso's lover at the time, Dora Marr, who had witnessed and documented the making of Guernica, and uh, as it happens, she was able to take photographs of each stage of its, of its uh, composition. Picasso had told her this, I know I am going to have terrible problems with this painting, but I am determined to do it. We have to arm for the war to come. Again, uh, that might sound ridiculous to those who don't think poetry or art is of any importance. But what a wonderful thing for Picasso to say, this huge painting, this huge canvas that you need a ladder to get up to. Uh, the only other painting that uh, comes to mind where the painter needs a ladder, at least for me, or I guess it's a scaffold, would be Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel. But here we have Picasso saying, we have to arm for the war to come. We need our images. We need uh, the images of the things that matter most to us. Uh, Dora Maar confirmed that the seemingly ironical addition of a light bulb inside the Mithraic sun in Guernica was a reference to her electrical equipment that littered Picasso's studio in the Rue de Grand Augustines. However, it also recalls a haunting passage in Louis Delapre's Bombs Over Madrid in which, quote, the beam from an electric flashlight illuminates the corpse, end quote. At the World's Fair, where Guernica was first seen by the public, electricity would be celebrated as a sign of modernity. And while Picasso painted his canvas for the Spanish pavilion, Raoul Dufy executed an immense mural commission mythologizing the history of electric power for the Palais de la Lumière uh, in Paris. Picasso's depiction of electricity, which in this case exposes the devastation of war and stark grisel, could not be farther in tone from Dufy's multicolored fairy tale. And I think it's in... Uh, Simon Shama's episode on Picasso, where he makes the point that the electric light in Guernica, hanging over Guernica, is the equivalent of, uh, not electric light, but at least of, uh, of candlelight being used at night at, in uh, Goya's 3rd of May, which also uh, is worth looking at in this context as an as a anti-war painting, or if not anti-war, at least if you're going to go to war, you should know what war looks like. Um, that's a wonderful idea that the light bulb in this painting, which has always been probably my favorite part of the painting for me, um, should come from just from electrical equipment, since it can carry so many other meanings other than that uh, supposedly pedestrian one. Uh, John Richardson goes on to say, 
that uh, Dora Mar's expertise behind the camera helped Picasso to eschew color and to give Guernica the black and white immediacy of a photograph, or even of a photograph in a newspaper. Her images of it became the first photographic record of the creation of a modern artwork from start to finish. Picasso did not want the painting to have a shiny surface, and so he asked the manufacturers of Ripollin whether they could develop an ultra-matte house paint. They succeeded, and according to Dora, Guernica would, would be the first time that it was used. Dora Marr revealed to me that she had painted the short vertical brushstrokes that differentiate the horse's body and legs. The artist had told her that the dying horse in Guernica stands for pain and death, la douleur et la mort, and is also an allusion to the horses of the apocalypse. The upturned horseshoe next to the head of the dismembered soldier, bottom left, refers to the sacred crescent of Islam and Picasso's fear of Franco's Moroccan troops. Picasso inveighed against the prospect of yet another Moorish occupation of Spain. Although Dora claimed that the bull represents the people of Spain, the fact that it is based on magnificent drawings of Picasso in the role of a bearded minotaur suggests that it had a more personal significance. In the painting, he portrays himself as a bull-slash-minotaur who coolly turns away from the carnage, seemingly unfazed by the mother, the mother figure holding a dead baby in her arms as she screams up at him. Dora Marr referred to the table where there is a bird as a sacrificial altar. The bull and the bird are both sacrificial victims. Um, you know. Dora also told me that she had been the inspiration for the woman on fire, top right, as well as the long-legged woman in the foreground. In his memoir, the British sculptor Henry Moore describes how a group consisting of Paul Eluard, André Breton, uh, Penrose, Giacometti, Max Ernst, and himself had lunched with Picasso, who then took them to the studio to see what breakthroughs he had made. And this is what Henry Moore says. Uh, Guernica was still a long way from being finished. It was like a cartoon just laid in black and gray, and he could have colored it as he colored the sketches. Anyway, you know the woman who comes running out of the little cabin on the right with one hand held in front of her? Picasso told us that there was something missing there, and he went and fetched a roll of toilet paper and stuck it in the woman's hand, as much as to say that she'd been caught in the bathroom when the bombs came. Looking at that part of it right now. Uh, the artist then announced to his guests, there, that leaves no doubt about the commonest and most primitive effect of fear. And Henry Moore commented, that was just like him, of course, to be tremendously moved about Spain and yet turn it aside with a joke. Zervos had committed Dora Mar to make a photographic record of Guernica's progress for an upcoming issue of his magazine. She photographed every major change in its astonishingly rapid development. Her photographs of the successive states of the painting are not dated but their order is self-evident. 
Picasso brought the great canvas to completion on June 4th, which means it had taken only 25 days. Apparently eager to promote the painting for the sake of the anti-fascist cause, Picasso uncharacteristically allowed a select number of friends, fellow artists, and influential politicians to watch him at work. These studio visits generated a notable buzz around the painting, well before its unveiling at the World's Fair. Guernica was yet unfinished when Reynaud came to the Rue de Grand-Augustine for the last time. He recognized a masterpiece in progress. Alone with Picasso, Reynaud proposed what he later called a museographic blasphemy. What would he think, I asked him, if, after the war, we prepared a special gallery at the Prado with Las Meninas, Picasso's Guernica and Goya's 3rd of May being exhibited together. And though this would never come to pass, Guernica would establish Picasso as the world's most celebrated modern artist. And there we have it from John Richardson's fourth volume, A Life of Picasso, The Minotaur Years, that just came out. And an awful lot remains to be said about it, but uh, it is just nice to see someone who is, who became so self-involved and self-referential and sort of hiding away as Picasso, someone who had the, eventually was able to have the leisure and the means to almost allow his subconscious to uh, rule his life and he could live in that world all the time. Um, and that's something that uh, Shama sort of talks about as well, that he just sort of becomes obsessed with his lovers and uh, sort of drowns in trying to paint them or doing these series of paintings over and over and over again. It's amazing to see him turn those personal touches to uh, political ones, mythological ones, ones that uh, have something to do with the world outside of his own head. On the one hand, I think of the American poet Robert Lowell in this context. On the one hand, artists who become famous and who become self-supporting and who are also extremely prolific, um, that's sort of the triple blessing or the triple threat, you might say. Uh, they can't help just constantly creating because that is what they do. Uh, and I don't begrudge anyone having to do that. I don't begrudge Picasso doing it. You just There's just no reason for a lot of his stuff after maybe 1920 or so uh, to give it much mind. But uh, it's just worth pointing that out as well. Um, you don't have to look at it. Uh, you should be awed by the uh, profligacy, you might say, of his muse, but uh, at the same time. You can't make much of it, but uh, the change, or not the change, but the the real meat, the real substance comes in Guernica, and at least for me, also comes in the other uh, Minotaur paintings that he does around the same time. And then, so we, uh, 
so we end again with Simon Shema. And uh, this is another wonderful anecdote that uh, readers or, or listeners, not just in America and Britain, but all over the world, will uh, appreciate. Let's see. Um, so we know that it is, uh, it is in New York. The actual painting is in New York. And this is how Shema ends, not just his chapter in the book about Picasso, but um, uh, the, the episode in the TV version as well. It says, And just when you think it's a magnificent relic, stupendous, stupendous in its time, but not what's needed in our 24-7 digitally enhanced, globally interconnected world, something comes along to remind us that it, it is precisely the video saturation, the routinization of carnage, that makes Guernica a reminder of what art can do that the news cannot do. And since the popularity of slaughtering innocent civilians in the name of a righteous cause is growing apace, we can always depend on murderous moments that will awaken the old black and white creatures, the tempestuous source of their original creation. Let me read that again. We can always depend on murderous moments that will awaken from the old black and white creatures the tempestuous force of their own creation. Just a few hundred yards from where Guernica hangs in the Reina Sofia Museum is the Antoka Railway Station. And on 11 March 2004, three bombs planted by Muslim terrorists exploded at the height of the Madrid rush hour, killing 192 and wounding 2,050. The station became a shrine to the defenseless fallen. But when the candles had gone out and the public rites of mourning passed, countless thousands made their way to the road to Guernica and stood before its pall of smoke and mutilated humanity. They needed no acoustic guides to tell them why it mattered. A year later, during the anniversary commemorations of, Antok of the Antoka bombing, I saw people from Madrid come back from the station once again to the painting. At the site of the explosions, there was now a little video installation surrounded with memorial candles. The slides did their thing as best they could. Horror, click. Horror, click. But it wasn't enough. The slideshow numbed rather than spoke. But Guernica, Guernica still speaks, and when it does, it screams bloody murder. This puncturing of routine can be a terrible nuisance. In February of 2003, the United States Secretary of State, Colin Powell, had put his pessimistic case on the likelihood of armed intervention in Iraq to the United Nations Security Council. A press conference was to be held in the corridor of the council room, but then at the last moment, someone whether among the American staff or the media, noticed something inconvenient about the location, to wit a tapestry reproduction of Guernica hanging on the wall. Oh dear, screaming women, burning houses, dead babies, bummer. A sky blue standard issue United Nations drape was found to cover up the offending item so that the press conference could go ahead. 
Of course, had the panicky newsmen and handlers thought for a moment, they might have co-opted Guernica rather than shrouding it. This is what tyrants do, they might have said, death, suffering, horror. But they didn't do this. However you managed it, there was something about the way the damned picture would look on the six o'clock news that would upset people and take everyone right off message. Much better to cover it up. It was, I suppose, the ultimate backhanded compliment to the power of art. You're the mightiest country in the world, the most powerful news organization around. You can throw armies at dictators, you can get rid of them, and you can cover the whole thing live. But don't tangle with a masterpiece. Not this one, anyway. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.